Welcome to the Weekly Benefit Roast, featuring Benefit Indemnity Corporation's President, Roger Bain. Roger has devoted more than 30 years to understanding and developing innovative health benefits plans for large groups and groups as small as five employees. Our moderator is Bob Graham. Take it away, Bob. Hello and welcome to the Benefit Indemnity Benefit Roast. It is April 15th, 2019. It's tax day. I know Roger and I have uh, various states of our taxes right now and everyone else is probably worried a little bit about that. So we're going to turn up the volume today and we're going to give you a good distraction for you, from your taxes. We're going to talk about the three greatest obstacles to employers accepting the concept of small gr group self-funding. True, that was a mouthful. Roger's going to explain. Roger Bain, who is the president of Benefit Indemnity Corporation, is going to explain the three greatest obstacles and how to overcome them. And we're going to talk about other questions that come up. If you'd like to introduce a question or get on air with us, you can type in the chat box and we will look forward to hearing from you. And uh, let me give you uh, just a little more background on Roger. Roger is a small business owner like many of you, and he's been creating innovative health benefit solutions for 32 and a half years, he told me this morning. We've hit the half point. He's like a six-year-old kid telling you it's six and a half, not six years old anymore. I'm kidding. He's president of Benefit Indemnity Corporation, which is a national health benefits provider based in Baltimore. And Roger is probably one of the most intelligent people when it comes to self-funding and health benefits. So without further ado, Roger, why don't you get us started? Thank you, Bob. I appreciate that. Good to know that I'm intelligent in one area or another. Anyway, uh, today, first of all, I'm not going to tell you all about self-funded health plans or the obstacles to self-funded for small employers, but we are going to talk about them together, hopefully. And hopefully you'll bring in some questions and we can have some pretty uh, productive discussion. But in, in the world of self-funded, we see that large employers have been self-funding predominantly for many, many years. In fact, since I got in the business 32 years ago, there has been the preponderance of larger employers have been self-funded. And that typically back in the late 80s was a threshold somewhere in the range of 200 employees. But right about that same time, we saw the development of a number of small group products start to evolve into the marketplace. Some of the independent third-party administrators had a few stop-loss carriers that started moving their size requirement down a little bit lower. Great West Life came into the marketplace with a plan that came all the way down to 25 employees. And then some of the other stop-loss carriers followed suit and worked to the point where we got down to as little as 10 employees in self-funding back in the early 1990s, late 80s, early 90s. So it's been around for a long time, but it has not been adopted nearly as largely in the small group arena as it has in the large group arena. So that's part of what we want to talk about today and see if we can figure out from a perspective as to what exactly is wrong. So if you have any questions or if you have any observations on that um, and you can want to share us, just click in your box for questions or comments in the chat and, and let us know what you think your client's biggest obstacles are. My experience would show these three. It's real easy. First is knowledge or lack thereof, right? 
Small employers don't understand what the large employers are used to understanding. And they see all of the advantages in large group and don't quite recognize that in small group. And plus in the small group arena, just the term self-funding can sound a little intimidating, overbearing, or even threatening because they start looking at how in the world am I to afford to pay my employees medical claims. What they don't know is that in the world of small group self-funded, the employers are buying a lot of insurance. And that insurance is purchased to protect the employer from the promise he makes to pay his employee benefits. And as a result, it can be very conservative. In fact, the, the, the market has overcome over the years many of the hurdles that a, let's call it a traditional self-funded self product may have had. And that is in the old days, you would buy administrative services and some root basic stop loss coverage to protect you from any really big losses. But that would be about it. Nowadays, we've come to products that do a lot more aggressive designs, a lot more conservative protection for the employer so we can have great benefits, a lot of insurance for the employer so we reduce their out-of-pocket exposure and actually fix their budget at a certain number, keep it fixed on a monthly basis. So hence the industry has developed a term called level funding, which is really reflecting that scenario. And in that level funded scenario, the employer has a much higher level of comfort, unlike the large group where their claims could spike in a given month and they'd have to pay out that much more. In the small group, you're gonna fund it at the maximum, continue to run, and so knowledge an understanding of all of the new market advantages and what's going on is probably one of the number one things. Hey, but Roger, I think, yeah. can I jump in? I know you like to get questions and statements as quickly as possible, so I apologize for jumping in. But Matt's, uh, Matt's raising a question. Sorry about that. You may have heard my phone. I apologize. Matt's jumping in saying, isn't all, it also that a small business owner may not have the staff that's a risk manager or someone who's really well versed in these matters? Well, Matt, that, that's a good question, but that's kind of part of the problem in, in this particular obstacle, the number one obstacle being knowledge or lack thereof. Really, in the small group self-funded arena, the risk management is, is going to be handled by the third-party administrator and the stop-loss carrier that an employer hires. So between the role of the broker the TPA that handles all the paperwork and the insurance carrier that protects the employer, we have all of the insurance operations taken care of. We don't need the employer to get into the health insurance business and start writing benefit checks or negotiating with doctors and hospitals or any of that. This is done in a turnkey type of product portfolio so that the employer isn't in the health insurance business even though they own their own health plan. So there's a big difference there. And since the passage of the ACA, by the way, this the is Affordable it, Care Act, right? The Affordable Care Act has brought much higher levels of attention to this whole market because we're quickly learning that when we're dealing with the challenges in the health insurance marketplace, the uh, the challenge that we run into is that it hasn't worked to control costs. Right. When we talked about the ACA, everybody expected and everybody wanted that we would have a scenario that gives us real ability 
to make a difference in the marketplace. Controlling costs, bending that cost curve, adding more competition, all of these things were put out there to us and yet not always provided. So that's important. I've got a question on screen also, Bob. We've got another one uh, here that's came in on my screen. From... It just came through for me. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. You want me to read it? Please. Uh, the contract is intimidating too. What happens if they go out of business or sell during the plan year? That's a great question, Roger. I'm not even sure I know the answer to that one. Well, that is a terrific question because that is, you know, in self-funded, in the world of self-funding and all of the contract provisions that we do and everything we do to really shrink down and cut the liabilities of an employer and really make it easy and conservative, there is still that issue that if an employer goes out of business in most small group self-funded plans, most small group contracts or self-funded contracts, they're going to stop paying premium. And if they stop paying premium before the end of the year, they probably not hit their minimum aggregate. They could, in fact, leave some claims unpaid when that employer goes out of business. So that is a significant disadvantage to an employer. So there is a certain amount of selection that you look at in the small group marketplace and make sure you're looking at employers that are established and clearly going to still be around uh, by the end of that plan year. And even that aren't going to be cut in half by then because many of these contracts will have an 80% minimum aggregate rule. So that means that whatever your proposed budget for the year is, it's gonna be 80% of that even if you cut your employee population in half. So that's a very good question. Thank you, Rini. Does that mean, Roger, that some of the risk that an insurer would carry in all this, they would look at the viability of that company when they're considering uh, plan coverage? Well, unfortunately, they don't do nearly as much of that as they should. I've never seen any of the carriers, well, I won't say never, but it's been a long time since I've seen any carriers do any financial underwriting of small employers. They typically take it on the employer's word that they're going to be able to afford these premiums and pay them every month and provide the protection that they're promising their employees. And so that is an interesting component. I think it is critical for the brokers involved to make sure they're looking at their customer from a perspective of knowledge of where that customer is going. If you go into a customer and their office is falling apart and the window shades are curled and yellow and falling off the walls and no sign of any improvements or replacement, <laughs> you know, that's one of those kind of offices where you may want to consider keeping them in a fully insured arrangement that goes month to month. And if somebody terminates, they're only losing coverage for one month. In a self-funded plan, it is stop-loss contracts are typically annual contracts, not monthly. So there's a big difference there. Roger, Excellent. just so we're clear, th this has not happened very often in your experience, right? You've you've dealt with thousands and thousands of policies. This is not like one out of 10 or anything like that, right? Oh, no, it's probably, from my experience in 32 years, probably less than one in a thousand. Okay. I just wanted to make sure because it was sounding like this could happen more often than I think it really is. And I wanted to make sure we didn't leave the faulty impression. No, I don't I don't see it happening that often. And if if we were taking self-funded contracts all the way down to two employees on a routine basis, then I would say yes, because we all know startup businesses, the vast majority of them fail within the first three years. So if those startup businesses with one or two or three employees decided to get into self-funding, I'd say that would increase the risk 
of that defaulting on the contract, which would be a problem. But I've I've seen very little of it. Okay, great. Well, Roger, why don't you move to the second greatest obstacle for us? Well, the second obstacle is once they start to understand all about self-funded, they learn that they need to become get examined. They need to do underwriting. They find need to find out what their risk. So unlike the ACA coverages that are going to rate that group purely based on the age of the group and the location of the group, when you look at self-funded, we're going to get a much more rating, a much more precise rating methodology. And that rating methodology is going to look at more factors. We're going to look at age, gender, the industry that the company is in, the location right down to zip code instead of just a region or section of the state. And we're going to look at health status of that group. Now, the best underwriters are going to look at the prognosis of that health status. Others are going to look at prescription drug utilization. Others are going to look at experience rating. But in the small group arena, the very best way to predict risk is to understand the medical conditions that exist in the group. And so underwriting means we have to ask medical questionnaires. And when you start asking medical questionnaires, some employers find that to be burdensome, even though it's the only way we did health insurance for many years, and it's still the only way we do life insurance today, right? Or at least almost the only way. Um, if you're going to get the best value, you have to understand what your risk are, risks are. So from my perspective, underwriting really isn't the negative we used to think of it. In fact, it's changed some. In the old days, we would ask an employer to fill out a whole lot of applications and a bunch of paperwork, and every employee fill out their medical questionnaire, and we'd submit that in, and we would get back a yes, a no, or a new number, and that was all, and that was extremely frustrating for employers and still is today in a lot of cases, but one of the things we've done to help turn that around is now you get a yes, a no, or a new number, and a full report that tells you why. And that why is the single greatest component to self-funding and benefit planning and strategies today. So many brokers and so many employers are looking at this self-funded option based purely on a rate and they jump in and don't necessarily know what their risks are. So they try and jump in and depending on whether the carrier tells them yes or no, and depending on how the carrier is evaluating that risk. For years, carriers have started using uh, well, for a number of years, carriers have started using this new prescription drug research type of underwriting. So they have a company out there that will go out and look at prescription drug utilization on their group and get a summary report. And they would this firm would give a risk score to the insurance company that they would then decide how to rate this group. But they don't get precise and detailed information. They don't always get injectables or hospital-administered prescription drugs. And oftentimes, they miss specialty drugs from those reports. And so what has happened over the years, the significant carriers that have used these have started to, uh, let's say, hedge their bets and reduce the use of those a little bit. They're increasing the group size where they'll use this prescription drug underwriting. They'll actually, one of the carriers is now even giving you a bonus to do full medical questionnaires instead of the prescription drug underwriting. So that kind of gives you an idea of where the failures or the weak points are. So let's talk about underwriting from that perspective for a minute. You're a small employer. You want to promise your employees benefits. 
you want to put some money into a claims fund on their behalf. You buy insurance to protect you so that your claims fund is the extent of your liability. But you don't want to just jump into that knowing you're going to spend every dime of it right away. You're really hoping to have some of that money left over at the end of the year. Well, the only way to find that out is to understand what's going on in your group. And if we find out that your group is high risk, well, then you're better off knowing that right out of the gate. Because with the knowledge that you get in our reporting in a group risk assessment, you're actually able to change some groups. Not every group, but some groups will find out that the reason they're not good candidates for self-funding is because they have a preponderance of routine medical utilization. Maybe a whole lot of high blood pressure, a whole lot of diabetes, maybe an inordinate amount of obesity. Well, these are all things that we can help improve over time. And so it's that process of making sure we work to improve those things that is extremely valuable to an employer over the long haul because they can use that information and go out and try and fix it. Ultimately, once you rehabilitate a group, get them back into a preferred rating setting like they can get in self-funded, you could potentially save a small group tens of thousands of dollars a year and sometimes even more on their health benefits. Over the long haul, that just adds up to be so much of a difference. And we have to look at that on behalf of employers and make sure that they have every opportunity to get what they can out of that. So underwriting has been a negative so long, but in reality, it is now being used as a positive so that we can understand and predict and in fact, even develop our benefit strategy based upon the results that we get in underwriting. So that's why we've changed Roger, the Roger, I've got a question. Sure, Bob. Sorry, I've got a question from Pete. He said, how complicated is the paperwork to do that, that um, underwriting assessment that you do of each employee? Well, that's a really good question also. Um, it, basically, it's a one-page application if we were to still do it on paper. But with the advent of technology growth, back in 2013, our firm started doing it all electronically. And I won't say all electronically because some employers will still demand a paper application or enrollment form for their employee. But for the most part, we do this in an electronic portal. It's a secure web portal with security systems similar to those in the banks. So somebody can go in, answer some medical questions, put in their information about their family, and we then can compile all of that into a full report so that we're actually giving the employer updated demographics, home address, telephone number information, anything they need that they're collecting from their employees that maybe their payroll system has gone a little bit out of date in that regard. So we get an automatic refresh and update of all of the employee information. But in addition to that, we can now tell the employer what we would project in medical concerns, questions, and costs in their health plan. So whether they're a self-funded candidate or not, just that knowledge is, again, really where the power is. Even in the fully insured world, it can give you insights as to whether you should be using a health reimbursement arrangement, a health savings account, or a traditional fully insured plan with all the bells and whistles that you can built into the carrier's burden. So risk sharing is not new to the health insurance business. An HRA and a health savings account, that's all about those things. But now we can blend the best of all worlds because we know what we're dealing with. When you go into a health plan blind, you just can't do that. 
Roger, John's asking the question that probably is on lots of people's minds. He's an employer. I have about 28 employees. I don't want them to think that I'm prying into their lives by asking these questions. How do you handle that? And what do I find out about my employees and what do they find out through this process? Well, that's a pretty good question. Um, many employers have that reluctance. And so many of the employers never even look at any of the individual applications that employees complete. In fact, the report that we give them doesn't name any employees. It talks in general terms about the health and the demographics of the group and what types of health conditions and medications we see being taken, but we do not share names, diagnosis, or dependence, or any of that with the employer, so that what we're really doing is getting a report that is significant and helpful, but doesn't compromise the privacy. And so the employees are filling out online. In fact, you know, we talk, many say, I don't like putting my information online, but yet at the same time, they'll fill out a paper application and put it on somebody's desk and let it float around on a desk and get faxed off one place and faxed off to another and, and then filed somewhere compared to putting it all in one secure electronic portal in one place. And it's not even left at their employer's office or shared from that perspective. So having that privacy and control is one advantage of doing it electronically. But the real point is it the electronic application process streamlines and helps a lot of problems in the business. So, you so Roger, can I just jump in? I, I want to be really clear. So an employer, if they had, say, 75 employees and there were seven or eight of them who had diabetes, there'd be a report that would say, of your group of X number of employees, seven or eight have diabetes, another six or seven have hypertension, two or three have, uh, you know, uh, what else? Some of the things, uh, I can't even think of anything. Is that how it looks to an employer? Yes, it is. That's exactly how it looks. Um, and the employee gets nothing in this, correct? That is correct. The employee does not get that report back. They only get their own information that they've put in themselves. Okay, and they're required to be accurate with that information, right? Absolutely, this is a formal contractual application in enrollment form, so they do have to put down appropriate information. For them and also their dependents. For them and for their dependents, yes. Very okay, good. okay, thank you. All right, do you wanna to move to the third one? Well, actually, before you do that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and pull up a quick sample of that document, just so everybody understands what really we're accomplishing when we do that. You're gonna to have to uh, describe it to our podcast people, of course. Well, yeah, for those that aren't on, you can always send me an email message and we'll send you a copy of it. But the group risk assessment that I've just put on the screen is just very, very effective and comprehensive. This group, as you can see, is only about 23 employees in this sample. But when we go through this report, we break out demographics at a level that most employers don't see which is kind of helpful in some respects, not as helpful as the rest of the information, but it's valuable. You get the average age of the members that are over 18. You get an idea of number of dependents under the group. You get their industry code. And then you get to something like this page where you've got a national comparison of tobacco use based on the employees and their dependents across the board. So the red being the national and the employee population being this particular sample group. And you get the same thing when you look at BMI 
and you can compare the body mass index so you get an idea of obesity and coverages. You go further from there and you get some really good information about the medical conditions and utilization based on employee, spouse, and children. So many times a small employer will know all about an employee's health because they've been out of work for a couple of days or they have this or they have that or they talk about it in the lunchroom. But oftentimes, if you have a spouse or a child that has some condition that is chronic and ongoing, a lot of times people don't like to talk about that at the office. So the employer has no idea that he may have a significant risk behind the scenes from one of his employees that's at work every day for the last 20 years and he had no idea that this medical expense occurred behind the scenes because they don't get that kind of data. So having a group risk assessment where we get this information showing current and historical medical data is really a valuable type of scenario. And then we get all the way into prescription drug. And, and I apologize that this report is actually a little bit older. This sample is a little older than our current. Our current actually works through a drug database and tries to match up a projected cost for these prescription drugs as well. So not only do you know about the general health status of the population of your group, you get a good idea of the amount of prescription drug utilization that's going on in the group as well, and a projected cost. So you get an idea of how much is being spent by your group in so many different ways. And Roger, if I can just interject, I'm looking on the screen and for the people who aren't in a position to see this on the screen, there's absolutely no identification of anyone. It oh, is. No. It looks like a list. I'm looking right now. You have the screen up. It says top 10 health conditions and it says intestinal hormone, endocrine, next one, reproductive, next one, heart, circulatory, next one, cancer, growth, tumors. It just has percentages. doesn't even break it out male versus female. So I'm not sure if I were an employer that I could do anything to really identify those issues. And when it went through the prescription drugs that you showed on a previous page or two, it gave absolutely no information. It just listed, it looked to me like the prescription drug name and the dosage. And that was it. That is correct, Bob. And, and that's why we actually resist providing the full report. We just use a summary discussion with a broker if the group is below 20 or 25 employees. Because if you have a five life group, you know, things become more identifiable. So we try and avoid that. Technically, the employer has a right to that information, but if they're not asking, we don't provide it. If they're not pushing, we don't provide it when we get into the smallest of groups, uh, just because it's more comfortable for everybody not to know that information. Okay, do you wanna to move to the third one, Roger? Sure, um, let me get back for a moment to the, uh, presentation at hand, and we will do so. I like when we make you work hard. Yeah, that's really hard. Okay, so when we go back, we talk about number three, plan B. What if I don't qualify? I'm doing a whole lot of work. I'm doing all this group risk assessments. I'm trying to do this paperwork and, and get really strong evaluation of where my group should be and where we should be going. And oftentimes that employer will find that they have some existing medical conditions or a preponderance of medical conditions, which just say you know, them, 
that this isn't the right thing or even says to us this isn't the right thing and we'll make a recommendation that says you should not be self-funded you should really move and or stay in the fully insured world well in this world what happens is employers typically don't make these decisions until the last minute just that natural procrastination so we get through this whole process we've gotten all the employees to go out and do all the medical questions and it sounds like a lot of work but they've got to do an enrollment anyway the last thing we want is the last hour to have to tell an employer i'm sorry it's not going to work you you're not going to want to be self-funded you need to stay in fully insured and then they suddenly are in a panic because they have to do all of this paperwork over again for somebody else in the fully insured market well the technology that we engage to do this on behalf of employers to do the group risk assessment helps save that problem so plan b if they decide not to go fully insured for whatever valid reason then we can populate the enrollment forms for any of their fully insured options that are out there so that they can get that done without worrying about deadlines. We already have electronic signatures and valid information from the employees. We'll populate the application wherever they need to be so that they're not stuck at a deadline at the mercy of their renewal proposal that might have been ugly. And so that third option, is a huge benefit to brokers and to employers now that just helps them get wherever they need to be without going back through a new enrollment process all over again. And what's the percentage, Roger, of the ones that go through? Do you have any numbers on that? I know you probably track that. Uh, the numbers are probably between 40 and 50% overall. Okay. You know, each carrier will have a number a little bit less than that, but you know, you never know. It's an interesting thing about what we see in the self-funded business is that every carrier has a different appetite for a different type of condition. So you could see a group that one one carrier has turned down and another carrier accepts, or one carrier has rated up a little bit more expensive and the other carrier hasn't. So, and they all have the same information based on what they've asked for in their applications, but they just have a different posture on how they handle it. And so, in that scenario, you'll see a variety of different options, but overall, close to half your business should be qualified for self-funding. Okay, so that's a so that's worth it to to go through that process because you have a significant chance of being able to go forward and save some money and also give your employees better uh, healthcare options. Correct. Well, by all means, and, and what's interesting is one of the products that we represent, what we find really attractive is, is if 30 to 40% of the groups qualify for it, but of the groups, once they're in, over half of them get some of their claims fund back. And that's a huge advantage to self-funding. That's what it's all about. And that over half that gets some of their money back is over $600 per employee per year. So you're talking about a $50 a month discount for the individual premium comparing to the fully insured premium compared to what they have in a self-funded cost. So you're looking at a really significant difference in savings potential in that particular side of the equation. Wow, that's that's significant. That That's worth... Uh investing the time that that's that's serious well, money it, it's it's especially worth investing in the time because i would tell you that 
even if you were going to do nothing different with your health benefit plan decision this year, doing that group risk assessment to get an understanding of the health of your employee population is worth all the trouble because what you gain in value from that is just tremendous. For you not to do that would be almost short-sighted. Because and you're you, walking them through this, right? You were the broker would walk through this report step by step and explain exactly what they're seeing. So even if they didn't qualify, they're going to get a whole lot of information that can be useful in other pursuits, correct? That's exactly correct. They get valuable information that they can use in whatever strategy they want to engage. And and I I work with brokers all the time and really encourage them to do more with that data because there are wellness initiatives and wellness educational programs and a lot of things that can be done to really help a lot of these groups. And if we can help get that educational program in place or a health incentive program in place to help the employee behavior change, better adherence to treatment for diabetes or high blood pressure, just those two things. I mean, our studies and the statistics we see in the health insurance business reflect that about 70% of our claims costs are based on these lifestyle choices, just people's behavior and how they handle their health conditions when they are there or how they handle the rest of their life. And so in looking at that, if we can take a shot at improving that 70% mark of our claims and even cut that part in half, you're looking at a 35% reduction in claims just by getting people focused on these known conditions that are better controllable. And sometimes it doesn't even mean you lose your high blood pressure or get rid of diabetes. It just means you're consistent with your medication and your treatment so that the big ugly parts of that don't happen. You know, if you control high blood pressure, it is so much more effective than if you let it go out of control. And diabetes, the same way. If you fail to control diabetes, you're looking at amputations and circulation problems and a world of greater complication as compared to controlling that. So we need to understand what we have before we can control it. And if we understand it, then we can provide the education to help support fixing a group. So even from an employee productivity standpoint, it's more valuable to do the group risk assessment, even if you never have any intention of changing your health plan. Roger, I've got a question from Will who says, do employees balk at the idea of doing these uh, forms and this paperwork, or is it just employers who have concerns? Well, it's really funny because employers have concerns about their employees balking at it. And I would say to you that the employees that balk at it is also in the range of one or two out of a thousand. Every once in a while, you get an employee that gets on as you know, this discussion of privacy and, and the Privacy Act, and you don't have a right to ask this thing, this information. And the reality is the employer does have that because they are intending to self-fund their benefits and they're sponsoring a group health insurance plan. And there is a very bona fide reason for this information to be provided. And so they do have a right to do that, to ask. And, you know, if an employee doesn't want to participate, the employee can always sign a waiver and not have health insurance through the carrier. But we rarely see that as an obstacle. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm saying it's not really the norm. So employees are not that resistant, especially when they're confronted with the facts that it is it is valid. It is true that it, everybody has a right to get this done. The, the prohibition on private information for an employer is really about 
improper use or disclosure of that information. As long as the employer is using it for a bona fide business reason, you know, employers are required to have PHI from the employees. You can't pay somebody a paycheck without having their name and social security number. So employers have to have that information and having it on a different level for their health plan just makes sense. Okay. Uh, Roger, do, do you have any closing thoughts or did we cover it all? You covered a lot of ground. I'm not sure how much more there is. Um, I don't see any more questions right now. I I think that uh, I have no real additional thing unless we had any other questions. I don't see any on my screen. I don't know if you see any on yours. I just I want to remind know. everyone that if they want their $5 coffee coupon, they should go to the link at the bottom of their screen now, which is benefitindemnity.co slash benefit roast attendee form. Fill that out and we'll make sure we get you your $5 coupon so you have a nice cup of coffee to drink while we're on our talk next time. And I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you guys again soon. We Bob, will anything be, else? It, no, we will be back next Monday afternoon. I think that will be the 22nd at 3.30 Eastern uh, Daylight Time with another discussion in our benefit roast. Until then, have a great week, everyone, and thank you for participating. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to The Benefit Roast, a weekly discussion sponsored by Benefit Indemnity Corporation. Employers in a wide range of fields are using employer-owned health benefits plans to deliver better benefits to their employees at a lower cost. Learn more at BenefitIndemnity.co. That's BenefitIndemnity.co. See you again next week.